Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and not with me, as always, is Mr. David Hudson. And filling in for my good friend, David, is my other good friend, Mr. Jason Johannes from the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast. Jason, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. It warms my heart to hear you say that about me. It's it's so, so nice of you. I consider you also one of my good friends in the voice in my head of the narration of my life, Ian. I know I've heard that and it's, it, it, it's offsetting, but uh, I'm glad you appreciate the, uh, the deep tones that I put out there, Jason. It's always uh, heartwarming to hear you say that. <laughs> you are the velvet fog of the podcast community. Oh man. I see a t-shirt coming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I, a very big episode today. We are, we are gearing up for, uh, we have a very special guest and unfortunately David, uh, couldn't work out the timing to be on. David will be kind of lurking in the background listening but he couldn't participate unfortunately oh david's coming in david was going to try to jump on and say hello to patterson before we started oh good all right i'm going to meet you guys i just when he comes on i want to say hello to him thank you for coming on and then i'm just going to have to listen in and not participate jason you can't david can't stand that we're together he can't, it's not he can't, yeah, he can't just step away it's not that it's it's not that it's, I, it's more important to me that he's on the podcast than me be oh, a part so, of it oh you're so selfless <laughs> hey listen listen jason's gonna try to wally pit me i know it i don't i got my own podcast i don't need your shit <laughs> wow, you're, fuck you know let's get over here <laughs> oh <laughs> listen shots decidedly podcast, maybe maybe david maybe i'd be gunning for it but because you know i've got my own gig i'm good this is killing me guys i ain't gonna lie this is killing me oh here's patterson I'll get out of y'all's way, but I am going to listen in. So this week, Jason is joining me so we can interview a iconic figure in the world of rock music. He is the co-founder and co-architect of a little band you might have heard of called the Drive-By Truckers. We are thrilled to welcome Mr. Patterson Hood to the program. <laughs> All right, everybody. So today we have an extreme pleasure of welcoming the co-founder and architect of one of the greatest American bands, in my opinion, that is the Drive-By Truckers. Today we welcome to the show, Mr. Patterson Hood. Patterson, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Uh, before we jump into anything, uh, I just wanted to talk to you about, because you have the uh, the Heathen's Homecoming coming up in, in Athens at the end of uh, March, and I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and your close involvement with Nucci space. Yeah, we, um, we started doing, you know, our band started in 96. We started uh, doing stuff for Nucci space in 2000, about two months, three months before they actually opened the doors when they were still uh, renovating the building and trying to get it launched off the ground. Uh, I became aware of what they were hoping to do and wanting to do. And, did a, a fundraiser for them that tied in with our, at that time, we were just really just starting to be on the road all the time. And so we called it our homecoming show and raised some money for them. And it just became a thing. And now it's been 23 years and uh, give or take a couple due to COVID and stuff, but we've, we've generally done it every year since 2000. And uh, um, so uh, it's grown to now it's four days and uh in addition to the money we raise, because they get a percentage of the door for our our weekend at the 40 watt that we do, our fans have kind of taken it upon themselves to kind of make us look bad by outraising us, and, uh, <laughs> which is awesome. We're thrilled about. And I think last year, I 
think last year it was over $60,000 that they just raised on their own, not counting what we'd raise. And, um, and the goal is always bigger each year. So I think they have a bigger goal this year. And uh, it's it's really it's really amazing what what they do and and uh, what Nutsi Space does too. It's a big it's it's been our pet cause from the beginning. Yeah, it seems like over time it, uh, the the homecoming has grown into a real like fan friendly environment. It's it's a real one of the coolest fan centric things for any band I've ever seen. It really is. You know, there have been through the years at several points there's been the temptation to grow it and make it this bigger thing. And um, it just never felt right. I'm I'm all about maybe doing something else that would be a bigger thing, but I kind of want to leave this like it is. It, it, it's it's kind of special being intimate, you know. Part of us doing it is it being at the forty watt, which we have such deep roots to, you know. And so forty watt seven hundred and fifty people, and uh, uh, they may have even cut it down to seven hundred in recent years, just as everybody's gotten older and with COVID and stuff, trying to keep it not so crowded, you know, and, and if we moved it to a bigger room, we could hold a lot more people, but, and make more money, but it would be different. It'd be a different vibe. And, and part of the doing it was doing it at the, at the 40 watt. And um, so, you know, because of that, it's just kind of, we've kept it like, we kind of kept it more of a family thing. And, uh, uh, or our version of a family thing. And uh, so it's it's been, uh, it's fun. We are going to add a West Coast version, though, uh, that I think we're going to hopefully start doing maybe next next fall. That's kind of a work in progress. But it'll be, it won't be a great big thing either. It'll be in a, in a pretty intimate type setting, too. So the West Coast one, is that going to be in Portland, where you're currently living, or somewhere else? We're talking about doing it at Pioneer Town. So uh, down down in the desert yeah. and uh, and uh, doing it, you know, when it's still warm there, even though it's mm-hmm. not maybe warm in other place, probably already be rainy here by then. And so uh, that's uh, that's kind of that's kind of the plan that we're working towards. And that's that keeps it more the vibe of what we already have and all that. So that that's what we're that's what we're doing right now. So be careful if you have it at Pioneer Town, because my friends in Jane Lee Hooker, the great Brooklyn-based blues rock band, they walked into an orgy accidentally at Pioneer Town. So just be careful what doors you go into and what you're doing there, Patterson. I mean, you know, that could happen. Rock and roll. About anywhere. Yeah, you know, but I'm going to do my best to, to not walk in on that. at this Just warning you. So on the homecoming, for those that are listening on this podcast that may not be familiar with that is what goes on at the homecoming event? So it's grown to four nights and uh, it's at the 40 watt and uh, we we host it and headline it. We try to keep our set where it's pretty different night per night. And, uh, you know, we don't ever use a set list, so it's always different anyway, but, but we try to pull out songs that don't get played very often during the course of that as kind of a reward for the people who come to it. And uh, a lot of the fans try to go to all four nights. And, uh, uh, in fact, a lot of them even come in early in the week and, uh, now we're doing Wednesday through Saturday. And so a lot of people, come in on Sunday or Monday and stay till the following Sunday or Monday and uh, just kind of make a week of it. And it kind of incorporates the whole town. You know, Athens is a, is a really cool small town. It's, it's not like, it's, it's not like any other small Southern town in, in anywhere to me. It's a, uh, you know, cause it's, it's got a lot of the things that make a small Southern town, what that is, but it's also a university town and it's very, you know, it's very progressive and, and it's very art centric and kind of weird. And in a lot of ways, the vibe is more like a Portland or an Austin or something than a small Southern town. Uh, it just happens to be in a small Southern town. And of course, you know, REMs from there, B-52s are from there. There's such an amazing music history there. And so a lot of the town's kind of steeped in that. And in the last 10 or 15 years, it's kind of become a bit of a foodie town too. So as our fans have gotten older, the, the food has gotten a little more, there's more grown up <laughs> food options than when I first moved to Athens and it was pizza and burritos. <laughs> you know, there's still pizza and burritos, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of like really good, you know, pretty amazing restaurants to eat at too. Yeah, Patterson, you touched on something before that I always thought was one of the coolest things about drive-by truckers is you don't, perform 
with a standard set list. I mean, when we had Jay Gonzalez on the program, he kind of said, you know, maybe you'll have the first song or the first couple songs in mind. And then you kind of just call them out for there. Yeah. What Do you find that keeps it things a little more interesting as you go along over the years? Yeah. I'm, I, I mean, I love it. And uh, we all do. It's, it's definitely just part of the thing. It, it's funny, the roots of it, you know, Cooley and I've played together for almost four years. We'll hit 38 years this August. And uh, we had, this was our fourth band together. And um, our first band together starting in the eighties was Adam's house cat. And back in those days, he and I were both young and we, we butted heads about everything. And we were, we were constantly fighting. And uh, um, one of the things we often thought about is uh, I would make a set list and then I wouldn't follow it. And uh, back in those days, he wasn't even writing songs in the band. He he was, if he was writing, it was in secret and he wasn't bringing them into the band. So they were all my songs and I would veer off the set list and then he'd get pissed at me. So when we first started the truckers, like, like early, early, like one of the first, you know, within first 10 shows, one night I'm sitting there and, and I'm right making a set list. He goes, what are you doing? And, you know, grumpy asshole. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I'm like, I'm making the set list. Why? Uh, so we'll have a set list. Are you going to follow it? <laughs> well, then why the fuck are you making a set list if you're not going to follow it? So from that night on, it eliminated something we thought about. And it actually, it eliminated like probably 25, 30% of the battles we would have had. And, uh, and it just, then it just kind of became a thing because then, you know, the, most bands that do that type of thing tend to be kind of jam bands and we're mm -hmm. really not, you know, we, we aren't a jammy band. Uh, you know, in fact, we kind of think of ourselves more as a punk rock band as far as our, as far as our mindset towards it. And, and, you know, our goal is for the set to go as quick as it can, as far as the, you know, song, song, boom, boom, boom. And, uh, Doing that without a set list is really challenging, especially <laughs> with two different writers in the band. And so it goes back and forth. And uh, whoever does the first song, you know, the other one's going to do the next song. I have no idea what Cooley's next song will be. He has no idea what my next song will be, uh, you know, and, and we're both obstinate enough that there's probably some nights where there's a little bit of stump the band that happens too. <laughs> but the goal is to have it be seamless and Often it is because we've gotten really good at it. We've got hand signals like baseball players and, okay. and there's different hand signals to the guitar tech. So he knows what guitar to have ready. And there's all that kind of stuff that happens. And of course, you know, occasionally it train wrecks too. And that's <laughs> kind of fun too, because that's pretty rock and roll. So that is, and yeah. you answered part of the question I was going to ask is like, how do you, Make sure, one, you're not playing like five songs in the same key. If you have any instrument changes, like how do you prevent that from happening? You said hand signals. We've been doing it a long time, so we've gotten yeah. good at it. But I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, sometimes it does happen. Believe it or not, we've only repeated a song accidentally one time in over 3,000 shows. And uh, uh, at Homecoming one year, Cooley played Ghost to Most a second time. And I don't think the fans will ever let him forget it. And, uh, and you know, I think you know, 3,000 shows, that's not bad. You know, not bad. I'm, I'm surprised it was him and not me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> see, now you mentioned Mike Cooley. I mean, you guys are the two mainstays throughout the entire history of the drive-by truckers talk a little bit about your relationship how you guys met each other and and how you have sustained a, a, a working relationship for 38 years now i think our secret is that we just we say terrible things to each other and um and uh like marriage yeah well like like our, oh well, no 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 way way more terrible I've, i could not say the type of horrific things to my wife that i said you know and and i think i think by starting every day with you know how you doing motherfucker you know i think i think that it means nothing builds up and uh you know if 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 someone's pissed it's usually dealt with pretty quickly and uh and so uh i think that i think that's helped you know, and over the course of all these years, we've actually, I mean, we actually get along pretty great now. Uh, once we started having kids, it really changed the dynamic of our relationship in ways that I never could have imagined. But, uh, you know, and 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 kind of, and it's kind of cool because our friend, our kids have become friends, which we really 
didn't in any way encourage or or even do anything to try to make that happen. It kind of just happened on its own. But that's pretty cool because they've they they're they're kind of buds. And um, you know, I don't know. I mean, we're we're family at this point. You'd have to be to just sustain that long, you know, kind of intertwined permanently, I would think. Right. You need a family band, man. Look at those kids all in a band together. And you guys take the show on the road. They open, you guys play. <laughs> My kids are adamantly not joining a band. I mean, that could change at some point in their life. The, but right now that would be like someone asked my son who's 13 and, uh, and very blunt asked him, you know, what instrument he played. And he rolled his eyes at him. And it's like, there are far too many musicians in my family already. <laughs> That's how they rebel by not being into music. Yeah. Cooley's oldest is a, is a, is a badass guitar player. He's really good. And uh, he actually just finished Luthier school at Jacksonville's uh, oh, wow. Luthier school in, uh, in uh, Santa Fe. And so he's building guitars now and he's a, I mean, he's a great player and a, really good singer and uh he grew up doing uh he grew up doing a lot of stage and acting stuff so he took all his voice lessons for that when he was like young and so imagine Cooley's voice if he had like been like trained as a child how to actually do it he's kind of a force to be reckoned with I, I look forward to seeing what he may end up doing you know but um but I don't know if any of the rest of them are really into it that much. Most of the most of the rest of our kids kind of run from it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the fascinating things I find about Drive by Truckers is the storytelling in your songwriting. It, it really is. You really get a glimpse into real America, as far as I'm concerned, and that's what I take from it. I, tell me a little bit about how you write songs like uh, "Wake You in the Morning" and things like that. Things that really really have a story to them, right? I, I've always loved storytelling and, uh, you know, long before I in any way thought of myself doing it, uh, I loved it. And I loved story songs, you know, as a, as a kid, I loved, you know, uh, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was a huge song for me when that was, you know, when I was 13 or whatever and, uh, and still love it. And, uh, and I also fell in love with songs that maybe don't have a story per se, but they imply a story or there's a story, but they don't necessarily tell it, which is kind of more where I've been lately with my writing. I, it's, it's funny because years like none of my earlier bands really did that. It was it was something I started doing when I started doing the drive by truckers and uh, which also kind of coincided with someone turning me on to Tom T. Hall, who probably the greatest storyteller songwriter of all. And uh you know, it all kind of happened. And, you know, so I went through a period of of really trying to develop how to do it. And then after I'd done it for a while, I kind of have moved more into a, a of trying not to do it, but maybe have the story be there under the surface more. And uh, which is which is really kind of my sweet spot now. And I, I guess uh, Wake You Up in the Morning probably falls under probably a lot of the songs on Welcome to Club 13 sort of imply stories without actually telling them. And that's, that's kind of become my sweet spot, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, they really suck you in. It's, it's almost like a lot of traditional country music type of uh, songwriting and and storytelling. Well, I love that. I love traditional country and uh, I don't really think of myself as that because I don't think, I don't think I've got necessarily all the tools you need for that. Cooley can do it. Cooley can, I mean, Lisa's birthday I think holds up as a, as a true traditional hardcore country song. And he's got several that do that and I can delve into it, but I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think of myself. I mean, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think of myself as a rock and roller and uh, you know, and, and I love all the different subgenres that that can include. So, so going back to some of these songs, we will never wake you in the morning. Was that based on a true story or just kind of a amalgamation of different things? Unfortunately, it's it's you know it's it's pretty it's pretty closely based. I mean, 2020 there was a lot of loss and and mm-hmm. there was you know there was there was there was one one friend in particular that inspired it, and actually another friend that after the song was written could just as easily have inspired it too. Unfortunately, you know, so it it uh, I mean, anyone who does this, we all know, we all have friends who just you know, succumb to, mm-hmm. to the demons. And, uh, 
So that one, you know, so it was definitely inspired by, you know, a a couple of people. So the record that you did with uh, Mike and Jason Isbell, a former member of Drive-By Truckers, the Live at the Shoals Theater, that's a particular favorite of mine. And it was nice to see you back together with Jason. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how Jason came into the band. We, we, we had done the Southern rock opera record and uh, uh, we barely didn't break up finishing that record. I mean, it, it was, you know, we were trying to do something that we felt so strongly about and it was a pretty ambitious thing to do with no money whatsoever. Cause we, you know, we weren't a signed band in any regard in any, in any way then. And so we completely sell, I mean, we made Southern rock opera for about $7,000 you know, and, and over the course of that, we were on, we were living on the road. We were playing 250 plus shows a year back then, sleeping on people's floors and uh, all our personal relationships were kind of falling apart. And I got divorced and another guitar player got divorced and somehow the coolies stayed together. And uh, uh, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of that kind of thing, which in a band going through that much cooped up in a van, they start taking it out on each other. <laughs> and um, so, you know, by the time we were, finishing that record we really weren't even speaking i mean kind of literally weren't speaking and uh uh david barbie kind of figured out how to get us all talking again and keep he basically you know set us down it's like guys you're trying to do something here it's really cool if if you break up now it'll never be done and you know what 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 have you got so we we kind of got our shit together and got the record out Right after that, one of the guitar players in the band who helped make that record, Rob Malone, left the band and uh, rather suddenly. And um, as it so happened, I just met Jason right around that about it. Within that year, I had just met him and uh, he was a, a friend of a friend. And um, he and I just instantly clicked when we first met. There was like an instant chemistry. And the first night we met, we were both sitting around with guitars. And when we played together, it was as if we had grown up playing together. It was like such an an, an overwhelming chemistry. And uh, of course, you know, no one knew who he was. I mean, he'd, he'd never even really been in a band. He was like a, a singer songwriter guy. And uh, but he was a, an amazing player and uh, as well as an amazing singer and songwriter. So, as it so happened, the night that the guitar player quit, Jason happened to be there. And we were playing like a house concert in my hometown. And uh, the Southern Rock Opera just come out and was starting to get a little bit of a buzz, but it hadn't taken off yet. And uh, Spin Magazine had sent a uh, a writer into town to do a story about that record and about us. And um so we're sitting there doing like this house concert, playing acoustic with a missing member and the empty chair and Jason's sitting there. And I know good and well, he knows all the songs. <laughs> so at some point, about a few songs in, I'm like, hey, man, grab a guitar and jump, join in. And he did. And he played with us for the next five years. And, uh, <laughs> and it was magical. You know, he he, he made us a, a greater band. And uh, within the first Two weeks he was in the band. He wrote Decoration Day. And uh, not long after that, he wrote Outfit. And, uh, you know, it was just a, it was an amazing time. And uh, so that's how it all started, you know, with him. And uh, at a later point, it wasn't all so good. And and he left the band and, you know, and, and he went through a pretty rough time, you know, with some substance issues and and uh, pretty pretty scared there's going to end up being a song like wake you up in the morning about him honestly you know because it got it got pretty bad and uh but fortunately he figured it out you know and he 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 now he's extremely doing extremely well on a personal and a and a career level and um and you know at some point after all of that, we fixed our relationship and became really good friends again. And, and uh, so it was, it was wonderful doing that, that show, the three of us getting to do that. And, you know, I hope, I hope we get to do something like that again at some point too, because it would be fun. It was, it was definitely a fun experience. Yeah. I mean, the, the version of the band with uh, Jason Isbell in there is, is amazing, but I honestly believe that the, the current lineup of the band is, is the, is the strongest. And, uh, you know, your most recent record, the, uh, welcome to club 13 is just, just fantastic. Uh, talk a little bit about the making of that record and, and how you feel about it. I mean, I, I'm super proud of the 
I mean, I, I love all the different incarnations of the band and I'm proud of, you know, some I love more than others, but there's, there's three that have always stood out to me. And, uh, uh, but the current one is, is really special to me because, you know, for starters, we've, we've been, to, we've been able to keep it together. I mean, we've, you know, we're on the 11th or 12th year since we've had any kind of a, a personnel change. I think this is the 11th year since we had a personnel change. I love that. Cause I hate person. I, I don't want personnel changes. I don't want, you know, I, 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 I like, you know, I like the idea of keeping it together and, you know, it would, it would suit me just fine for this to be the band forever. And uh, until I'm gone and um, you know, we all, we all enjoy hanging out with each other when, when the tour is over, no matter how grueling the tour, you know, we're all kind of sad to say goodbye and we're all glad to see each other when we do it again. And uh, by us having played together as long as we have with everything intact from this lineup, there's a, I mean, we, we went, we, we made the welcome to club 13 record in three and a half days. And really? uh, we've always worked fast. All our records are made quick. We've never been a get in there and waste time and spend a bunch of money kind of band. But um, even if we had a lot of money, I, I wouldn't want to do it that way. But I mean, three and a half days is pretty crazy. Yeah. You know, we, we did our first record in about three days, but that was because we didn't have any money. And it was like, <laughs> you know, three days is all that takes good do. enough going to the next one yeah i mean that was it you know and and when you listen to it you know yeah man it would have been nice they'd had a few more days you know but, uh, <laughs> it's part of the and, charm uh, of that rock oh, first sure, record of course people, right <laughs> of course but uh you know but but a record like welcome to club 13 doesn't really sound like a three-day record i mean it no. it it, yeah. if anything sounds like a record we spent a lot of time on but we didn't and uh there's an immediacy about it though that i think comes from that that i really like and uh uh because this was like the first time we got to really actually see each other after the pandemic and so we had been apart for a year and a half and we booked the studio days initially because we were about to start playing shows and we hadn't seen each other. And it's like, well, we should probably all get in a room for a couple of days and play before we go out in front of an audience. And then it's like, well, we don't really practice. I mean, <laughs> we've played that many shows. It's like the last thing we really need to do is go over hell. No, I ain't happy again before we, you know, play it in front of anybody. But we had all, you know, Cooley and I had both written some songs, during the lockdown so it's like why don't we go in and demo these new songs and then we kind of see where we stand and see what we want to do when it's time to make a new record and then at the end of the third day you know Cooley who you know doesn't tend to he doesn't throw out the niceties that often he's like well as far as I'm concerned we just made the record. I don't really see what else we need to do. And I'm like, I feel exactly the same way. So that's the record. You're a band originally from the South. Muscle Shoals onto it, Georgia. Now you're living in the Pacific Northwest. How does the different geographies affect your songwriting, your approach to music? I think it does. I don't know exactly how to pinpoint it. I mean, for starters, you know, I spent 51 years living in the South, so that's going to always be there. It's not like, sure. you know, and culturally, Portland's not that radically different from Athens, Georgia. You know, people, when I first moved here, would say, oh, I bet you're having culture shock living out there. It's like, no, actually, the culture shock was when I moved from Muscle Shoals to Athens, Georgia. That was culture shock, <laughs> you know, and it's like, God damn, why is everybody being nice to me? You know, what are they, <laughs> you know, where's the knife, you know, and because uh, <laughs> because Athens is very, I mean, it's culturally a lot like Portland, you know, it's 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 progressive and and very artsy and and stuff like that so it's uh you know i love the climate because the hot weather all the time was driving me crazy and and the humidity and all that in the south although it's hotter here than it used to be because of climate change it's yeah. actually you know they're saying that that may start becoming an annual thing which is terrifying but and you guys uh, are out to get air conditioning now i know i know and uh Part of our house has it, so so at least the upstairs where we sleep has AC, so that's nice. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people getting any work done on your HVAC stuff out here is nightmare because people are trying to get air conditioning now for the first time. 
all of a sudden summers are really hot now. But as far as I don't know, you know, it's like, I mean, I've always had a, a lot of sense of place in my songs. Uh, there's definitely some songs I've written that are set out here. You know, I wrote Ever South while going through the homesickness in that first year of living out here. And um, uh, Sun Don't Shine song on the, uh, the American band record was definitely inspired by living out here. But, you know, like I said, at the same time, I've got 51 years of you know, Southern folklore that's in there. Um, I'm, I'm working on a record right now on a solo record. And, and a lot of it is kind of set in my childhood. And so it's, it's pretty steeped in a lot of Southern things. So, you know, I don't know. It's not going to be grungy Seattle alternative nineties rock. Then. <laughs> um, that'll, that might be some record down the line. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Once you live there a little longer. Yeah. Now has the, the changing climate in America affected your songwriting over the last few years. I mean, not to steer things politically or anything like that. You know, we were, we had already finished recording American band before, you know, it, it wasn't, it was supposed to be a one thing we were doing. You know, we, we, it, the, the writing of that record was so largely inspired by, you know, the Trayvon Martin murder and, um, and all of the events happening in Ferguson and the fact that they had been happening for years and years all over, but all of a sudden now people had phones. And so what had been being talked about mainly in black neighborhoods was all of a sudden being talked about all over middle America and mainstream America. It's like everyone was all of a sudden aware of this thing that had been happening all along. And, um, and that, that largely inspired that record and, you know, the plan after that record was to do something different. And, uh, you know, the the unraveling record was largely written, it, it, at least most of my songs came from conversations I had with my kids during that horrific period of particularly 2017 and 2018 when I was writing most of that. Uh, just the, the general horrors that were happening every day on the news and around us. And, uh and so we ended up doing that record. And then, you know, the new OK was kind of our lockdown record because we we had some songs left over from the Memphis sessions that most of Unraveling came out of. And then the protests here and they sent in the troops. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much everyone out there knows about what happened in Portland the summer of 2020, but it got really fucked up. And when yeah. they sent in, they literally sent in troops without like, without any kind of like, you know, they didn't, you know, normally if you're in the military, what you, your uniform has what branch of the military, there right. might be a number and a name. These were like unmarked troops driving around in minivans, picking up, protesters off the street and taking them to like a undisclosed place and fucking with them. I mean, all kinds of crazy shit happened. And, you know, Portland's famously, you know, one of the most liberal cities in America, but five miles in any direction. And it's not that different from Alabama. I mean, except they're more armed and, uh, and a little angrier and, uh, uh, it's actually a little scarier. And so I wrote the new okay and watching the orange clouds about the occupation and all of that. And so we ended up with like this trilogy of records that were very steeped in the current political climate. And uh, I'm proud of them, but at the same time, I don't want to do that forever. <laughs> Is writing about things that speak so candidly about things and, and deal with things that are topical. Do you ever feel any resistance from the audience or any blowback from that, you know, especially in this world of social media platforms, you know? I mean, sure. You know, when, um, when American band or even before it came out, when, when it was launched, you know, when the, when the press started happening for that record, there was a ton of blowback, uh, mostly social media blowback, you know, and you, you know, oh, you just lost half of your fan base. It's like, well, feel that way. Okay. Don't let the, you know, have they not listened to any of your records or lyrics? Prior I to mean, that? no shit. You know, I've always considered us a punk rock band. I've always considered us a political band. You yeah. know, I think the living Bubba, which is on the first album, it's a political song. It was a, about a guy dying of AIDS, you know, and that was a pretty political thing at the time. And, 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 uh, 
You know, there's there's always been a I mean, Southern rock opera is a very political record. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, it may have been set in the 70s, but only because that's when it was set. I mean, it's not that those things didn't still happen. You know, I've always considered us a political band. But the difference with American Band was it was set in the here and now. It was there. There wasn't the filter of well, this was in the people weren't able to tell themselves, oh, this was something that happened when I was a kid or before I was born or in my parents' generation or whatever. You know, it was set in the right here and right now, and so I think that's part of why people reacted to it differently. But. Um, at the same time, for all the talk of how much we were losing our half of our fan base, American Band is one of our very best-selling records. And uh, it's my favorite record uh, of yours. Thank you, and uh, I'm I'm extremely proud of it. It's and uh, you know I, I think it and the Dirty South are probably the two best-selling records we ever put out. And uh, the it was definitely the most successful. You know, it was supposed to be about six months of touring behind it. And we toured behind that record for three and a half years. And uh, so it was an extremely, it it did really well for us. And, uh, and, you know, for the people that ran off, there were a lot of new people who started coming. We started seeing more younger faces, uh, a little more diversity in the crowd, not as much as I'd like, but a little bit more, uh, definitely some more female faces in the crowd. (laughs) And, uh, and, um, some of the people that ran off tended to be some of the people that didn't know how to act when they were there. And so the, the, the vibe in the crowd changed a good bit and it became, you know, I think, uh, I think it became a better place to hang out. And so, you know, I'm, I'm happy with all of that. Now you touched on American band there for a second, and there's actually a, a tune on American band called ever South, which right. I think is, is, one of the more personal songs in your catalog. Can you homesick song? Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little uh, bit about that one, the writing process and how it all came together? It's it's funny. There's a there's a movie called Brooklyn that came out in 2015. It's really great film and uh uh written by is it is it is his name is it Nick Hornsby that uh high fidelity? Yes, it's really beautiful film. And my wife and I went and saw it at the theater when it first came out. And uh, I think I cried pretty much all the way through it. But I mean, the film's basically, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a girl from Ireland and she moves to Brooklyn in the forties or fifties or something. And, and, you know, it's, it's about her homesickness and, and, you know, and then she tries to move back home, but it's not, you know, can't go back and, and all of that. And it, it is a really beautiful film. And I came home from watching that and wrote the first half of ever South, like, like in my dining room, like when I first walked in the door and then I woke up the next morning and read what I wrote and finished the song. It's, I mean, it's definitely fantastic. One of the, one of the more personal songs in your catalog, as is on welcome to club 13, the driver. Right. That's amazingly yeah. personal. Tell me, tell us a little bit about that one. Cause that's, that's such an amazing song, Patterson. Thank you. Uh, um, I'm, I'm real proud of that. That's a, uh, uh that was actually the last song I wrote for that record. And uh, uh, I wrote it in March, right before I, right before we started coming out of the lockdown, you know, I've always kind of been that person as far as driving was a, 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 I learned to drive when I was like 12 and, uh, you know, cause I, I spent a lot of time on a farm when I was a kid and there were all these old cars out there that were my great uncle's old cars. And so I learned how to drive a three on the tree and, you know, I drove a Studebaker and a, and a 59 <laughs> Ford and a, an old 71 Dodge. I had all these cars that I learned to drive out at the farm and I was a go-kart kid too. And, uh, so, uh, so driving was always a big deal. And, um, in various times of my life, my way of dealing with things would often be just to go out at night and like drive around late at night. In those days, maybe sometimes it breaking the law while I did it, but because um, I, you know, grew up in rural Alabama, so yeah, I'd drive around with a six pack of beer, playing my music loud, and 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 thinking through shit. Don't try this at home, kids. But uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so. Uh, and, you know, and then, of course, the band, we hit the road. I was on the road, you know, and and uh, when we were still driving in bands, Cooley and I did 
the lion's share of the driving. I mean, he, one of the two of us were almost behind the wheel, almost always behind the wheel, you know, in the, that, what, 1500 or however many shows we did in those days when we were still, you know, we wore out three vans. And uh, so that's always been a, a big thing. So that song was sort of a, it talked about all of that, you know, and driving kind of defined me and gave me my moments of clarity that a lot of the decisions in my life that have been some of the most important decisions in my life were made were made during these late night drives. But, you know, there's there's a there's a dark side to it, too, you know, because often the things that make you can also be the things that break you. And, you know, and so, this, you know, you'd see horrific shit on the road sometimes, you know, and and sometimes it would almost happen to us. You know, there were, you know, times when there was a hydroplaning incident or someone driving the wrong side down the interstate, which we which did happen to us. And fortunately, we were in the right lane and not the left lane or else we'd be dead and uh, things like that. So, you know that song is kind of has all of that in it. You write a lot of emotionally charged music. When you write that music, does that help relieve some of those feelings you feel, or does that get you even more fired up or even more, whatever emotion you're feeling? Historically it helps. And, uh, you know, as I've gotten older, I don't write as much as I used to, which Mm -hmm. I think is a, which is not probably a good thing. And, uh, uh, that's that's a separate question though. But uh, generally, if I write about it, it helps. If if nothing else, if it doesn't solve the problem, it at least helps me process it and uh, and uh, helps me deal with it and uh, turn it into something. You know, hopefully, at least something constructive can come out of it. The most recent song I've written, which we're actually about to record, is a uh, uh, about. Uh, Wes Freed that did all the artwork for the band from Southern Rock Opera Forward and all our posters and all those album covers, including Club 13. And, you know, he passed away last fall uh, very suddenly. And uh, uh, we're all really still grieving really hard about it. And uh, uh, and so I wrote a song for and about him that uh, we're about to record. I think we're going to just put it out as a single, like a freestanding single soon, you know, and unfortunately, you know, I I still feel like shit from, you know, from it, but at least, at least I've got a song that I think he would have liked. And, uh, uh, and, and I think when we're, recorded hopefully we'll have a version that would have made him smile he'll be smiling in heaven i hope as as far as the not writing as much as i used to the way i tend to write is more like kind of an antenna up in the sky and uh and picking up a transmission and when my antenna's up i can pick up that transmission that might enable me to write a song because it's often as if the song's just writing itself and I'm just writing it down as fast as I can. I hear the record playing, you know, in outer space and uh, just try to get it before it goes away. But uh, the downside of that is when the antenna's up, nothing else gets done, you know? And so it's like, you know, did you feed the kids? Uh, No, but I wrote this great chorus, you know, kids don't care about the great chorus. You know, they're hungry. They can't eat a chorus, Patterson. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's like, it's like, what do you mean you forgot to pick up the kid at fencing practice? You know, it's like, yeah, you know, but I'm working on this song, you know, it doesn't fly. And so, uh, so I'm not really writing as much at this time in my life as I did when I didn't have kids and I didn't really have a lot of responsibility. I mean, for years, you know, the band, you know, whatever band I was in couldn't get arrested, much less get <laughs> gig. So I didn't really have to worry about functioning. And so I just wrote all the time. And uh, and from a mental standpoint, that side of it was kind of awesome. But uh, But, you know, as you get older, you have to learn to function. So trying to, it's, it's a daily battle trying to figure out how to still be artistically productive and, you know, not leave the kid at fencing. 
<laughs> Kids just ruin everything, man. I've got two of them. I know. <laughs> it's all your fun. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying when that. they when they get older, though, it's better. My son just turned twenty. He's at college. My daughter's getting ready to graduate high school. So the wife and I do have a little bit more freedom. Yeah. Yeah, I've got an eighteen-year-old that's about to graduate, and then my young one's thirteen. So, so yeah, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> Once they start driving, right? Like, you're, there's a little bit of freedom gained back. It's like you can go and run to wherever you go, or take your your sister or brother somewhere. Right. <laughs> well, Patterson, I do appreciate you coming and joining us. I mean, we are a Black Crows based podcast. So to to wrap things up, I did want to just ask you, I know, and this is the first time I saw the drive by truckers was on the summer 2006 tour that you did with the Black oh, Crows. Summer 2006. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about that tour and your experience with the with the Crows there. Well, they were as nice as they could be to us, of course, and they were they were they were great, and you know they're they're an amazing band. Uh, that was a rough summer, I think, for both bands. I'm I'm pretty sure they weren't necessarily having the best time of their life that yeah. summer either, and mm. and uh, you know things with that lineup of the band were really at a tough time, and uh, we were all drinking way too much and 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 doing way too much and. And uh, Jason was still in the band and he was in the process of divorcing our bass player. Mm-hmm. And uh, that wasn't going very well mm-hmm. as tends to happen. And um, here, go ride in this van together while you're divorcing. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and he was kind of in the process of divorcing us too. And, and so it was a, it, it was a, it was a, it was a really bumpy summer. And, uh, uh, and, you know, we really haven't historically done a lot of opening act touring. I mean, we've generally played our shows and, 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 uh, you know, at, at that time, that was the first time we'd really ever done more than just a handful of shows opening for anybody. And we were out for several months straight playing sheds, which, you know, if you're the opening act in a shed means there's a lot of basically just sitting in a parking lot, you know, yeah. and, uh, uh, and then we'd play our 30 minute set and then we'd sit in the parking lot and drink and fight. And, and um, so it was kind of that summer for us. And, uh, you know, we survived it, but, uh, but they were all, I mean, they were as nice as they could be. And uh, the last night of the tour at Red Rocks, Chris told us some great Jimmy Page stories. And that was uh, <laughs> up on, on that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we all love some Jimmy Page stories. <laughs> You guys are getting ready to go out on a, a tour here. It looks like um, later on in the spring and the summer and open for you on the tour, I believe is Lydia Loveless. Yes. How do you know her? Cause I'm fascinated by her, but I want to hear how you know her first. And I'll tell you why I'm fascinated by her. I, I got turned on to her early. Um, a guy who played on her very first record was an old friend of mine from like way, way back early, early drive by trucker days. And he gave me a CD of her, I think first album like long ago. And uh, I think it sat on the stack for a long time before I even played it. Cause I just, it was like, I forgot I had it. Then one day I dug it up and I was listening to it and she had that Steve Earl song that I thought was about the most hilarious thing ever. And uh, when I heard that record, it's like, Oh my God, she's kind of like one of us, you know, she's, she's, she's like, kind I of punk like- rock. I mean, she is. And I felt like there was like a, a kindred spirit in, in her way of, of songwriting and uh, her way of expressing herself. And um, she did a show opening for me solo not long after that. And I was really excited because I was I had become a huge fan of her music. And uh, so I went and visited her, uh, knocked on the dressing room door backstage, you know, to introduce myself and welcome her to doing a show with me. And she wouldn't talk to me. And, uh, and, and she's like, like totally just like kind of cut me off cold. And so I go back to my room. And I'm like, well, she's either really unfriendly or painfully shy. And, uh, <laughs> so I go out and I watch her set and she's about three songs into the set. She goes, well, I'm out playing this show with Patterson. He came and he knocked on the door and I didn't know what to say to him. And all I could think about was, well, I, 
I lost my virginity while your band was playing on the stairs. Oh. <laughs> um, she's like telling this to the crowd. Awkward. It's like she wouldn't, she wouldn't even say hi to me. She's like telling the whole story to the audience. I'm like, yeah, we're 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 gonna be friends. And yeah, so right. We've, we've been fast friends ever since. But we're we're thrilled to have her out with us. It's a lot of fun. She's a good talent. So I'm I'm in, I live in the Columbus, Ohio area. I know that's kind of her home base now, but I'm fascinated with her because she's from Coshocton, Ohio, and my wife is from Coshocton, Ohio. And there's not a lot going on in Coshocton, Ohio. So right. when Great you guys name. come, it is, it is a good name. <laughs> well, you might this might ring to you. Uh, you know, of course, you know Todd Mays played with her for years, and he used to be in a band that we played with the very first time we ever went on the road. We played some shows opening for a band called the Lily Bandits out of Columbus. Yeah, and he was in that band, so I knew him from way back then. But uh, the guy who gave me the um, the CD of hers was uh, a guy who played pedal steel in her first band. And he used to be in a band out of Columbus called Big Back 40. Great band. And so uh, that's and, and he actually ironically lives out in Portland now. And his wife is our veterinarian. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's well, a real small world thing. <laughs> when you guys come by the, the Newport Music Hall there in Columbus by Ohio State, which is I've seen so many shows there. It is a cool venue. Right. I'm going to bring my wife because I'm like, look, somebody from Coshocton, Ohio has done something with their lives. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, please, yeah, get in touch before you come and all that so I can make sure, you know, I get to talk to you and everything. It'd be great. Yeah, yeah we'll do. I appreciate that. Well, Patterson, we really appreciate you joining us. What we normally do with our guests is we let them pick our playout song. So it could be any song you like to play out this episode. It could be one of yours, anything you want. Oh, shit. Pressure is on. Uh, God, what do I want to play? Last thing I played was Marquee Moon by television. I've been in a, you know, Tom Brown passed away, and uh, I've been on this huge television. I mean, I've always loved television since I was a kid, but but uh, uh, that's a, I mean, that's hard to top. Yeah, you know? let's let's sure go with that. All right, right, Patterson, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. And to play us out, here's television with Marquee Moon. Stay tall, everybody.
hesitating
There's a picture of you standing next to me In our wilder days With abilities to circumvent anything That got in our way We had a drive that fell in stark relief To the impending pain Could not sustain Sometimes I see your face In my memories With the looks so of the glory that the gods grew weak at the knees bounding through the doors of life's exalting reveries driving through the night on rain-soaked streets the way it used to be Our wilder days.